0: To Inspire, a production of Interfaith Voices, I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. On June 22nd, the United States Senate failed to overcome a filibuster. That meant that the first piece of legislation introduced in both chambers, the For the People Act, died in the Senate. And that's because the rules required that in order to end debate and get to a vote, They needed 60 votes. And in the end, they didn't have it. To supporters of the For the People Act, the law was important and necessary, expanding voter registration, reforming campaign finance laws, and tightening election security. On the other side, opponents say the bill was too broad, comparing restrictions on campaign financing to restrictions on free speech. And that new rules governing how voter rolls are maintained, in other words, who gets added and who gets taken off, would make elections less secure. There are a lot of emotions about the For the People Act and changing and creating more federal rules around voting. But the facts are not up for debate. States regulate and run elections. Since last year's presidential election, a torrential wave of voting reform laws have been proposed, and in some places, changes are taking place. In the Democratic-controlled state legislature like Connecticut, Governor Ned Lamont signed a state bill that automatically restored the voting rights to people upon their release from prison. In contrast, in Republican-controlled state legislatures, new laws are being passed that some say restrict and target historically marginalized groups, including people of color and immigrants. A proposed Texas law would ban drive-through voting. A Florida law would limit the use of ballot drop boxes. And an Arizona law would would severely limit the distribution of mail-in ballots. According to the States United Democracy Center, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that tracks voting legislation, 216 bills have been introduced in 41 states to give state legislatures more control. The effort was described in an ominous titled report called Democracy in Crisis. And as of this month, two dozen have been enacted into law in 14 states. Now, many of these laws are linked to what Democrats and others call the big lie. The false assertion that President Donald Trump was the real winner of the 2020 elections and that President Joe Biden's election happened through widespread voter fraud. In fact, one third of Americans say they believe the big lie. That's according to a new survey from Monmouth University. To be clear, there is no evidence that the election was tampered with or controlled by overseas actors. Now, since the election, a large and growing number of religious leaders and faith-rooted activists are mobilizing inside denominations and beyond, working with multi-faith coalitions and civil rights partners. And for some, that means stepping in front of the microphone to push back. One voice we heard a few weeks back in West Virginia was the Reverend William Barber, co-founder of Moral Mondays, leader of the Poor People's Campaign, who led a moral march on Mansion in Charleston, West Virginia.
1: Joe Manchin, I I love you, my brother, but you claim to be such a person of faith and you put your hand on the Bible and swore to uphold what's in the Constitution. I wish you would have read the Bible before you did that. So since you didn't, let me tell you that in Isaiah 1:10, 10, chapter 1, it says, Woe unto those politicians who make unjust laws and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey. Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said, Woe unto those that pay attention to all the little details, but you leave undone the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and fairness and love, which side. Are you on Joe Manchin.
0: Bishop Barber and the Poor People's Campaign focused on West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin because he was one of the most vocal opponents to the For the People Act and to changing the rules on the filibuster. But this week, Manchin shifted from principal opponent. He ended up voting with Democrats, explaining that now he is trying to work to broker a new compromise. Now, while Washington horse trading is underway, faith leaders are not waiting for the policy leaders. Clergy around the country are continuing to fight. In Arizona and Texas, they rallied around state houses. Tonight in Columbus, Ohio, faith leaders are holding a public rally with the Ohio Voters' Rights Coalition. There are faith leaders organizing and working with allies around the country. This week, my conversation with two of them. Both participated in a public action on June 16th with civil rights and faith leaders who marched to the White House for a kneel in protest prayer. Rabbi Jonah Dove Pesner and Reverend Timothy McDonald. Rabbi Pesner is the director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, and Reverend McDonald is the senior pastor at First Iconium Baptist Church in Atlanta. He's also the president of People for the American Way's African American Ministers in Action and founder of the African American Minister's Leadership Council. Nowhere has the issue of restrictive voting laws been more pronounced than in the state of Georgia, where a new 98-page voting law drastically reduces the number of ballot boxes, restricts access to absentee ballots, almost eliminating mobile voting sites, and making it a misdemeanor to hand out water to voters while waiting in line to vote. Reverend McDonald and Rabbi Pesner are opponents of the new Georgia law and all voting reform laws that they see as hobbling both the 1965 Voting Rights Act and the more recent John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Welcome to the show, and Reverend McDonald, just so listeners know, you and I go way back. Uh, I believe I met you um, a long time ago. I'm turning 50 next week, and I think I I met you when I was 26 years old when I walked into your church in East Atlanta over there at First Iconian Baptist Church. And so it is a pleasure to be able to sit and talk with you here on the program, and I look forward to catching up and hearing about all the work that you're doing.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I think it was around 1992, 93, we were talking about Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and how they were changing America, the evangelicals. In, yeah.
0: in some ways, I feel like we could still have that conversation just with protecting.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Let us uh, introduce and welcome our second guest. Welcome, Rabbi Jonah Pesner. If you could please introduce yourself or the listeners.
3: Sure, thanks. It's an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm Rabbi Jonah Pesner, the director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, the largest and most diverse denomination in Jewish life, and I'm here in Washington, D.C.
0: Tell us a little bit more for those who are unfamiliar with Reform Judaism in the United States.
3: Sure, the Reform Jewish movement is the largest denomination in Jewish life. There are more than 2 million souls led by 2,000 rabbis, uh, it's the most diverse. We are multiracial and multi-ethnic. Uh, we are in cities and states across these United States. Um, and my own part of our Reformed Jewish Movement is the Religious Action Center, which is our Washington office. That is the site of the historic drafting of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which might seem like ancient history, but these days, what happened once upon a time needs to happen all the time.
0: What was the backstory behind the building being that place in which the original bill that you're describing was was drafted?
3: Our origin story is quite remarkable. We had a leader named Kitty Kaplan, his memory for a blessing. Um, Kitty was famous, actually. He was the last white Jewish president of the NAACP, uh, the nation's oldest and largest civil rights organization, which I sit on the board. Um, was a coalition of white Jews and black Christians. And Kivy's formative experience, uh, he was typical of the Ashkenazic white Jewish person whose family came to this country with nothing, did well, became a philanthropist. But his defining experience was during his visit to the Jim Crow South. He saw for the first time in his life, a sign that said, no Jews, no dogs. And he turned to a black taxi driver who'd been driving him around. And he said, is this common down here? And the black driver just looked at him and said, they don't even bother with us. And Kivy understood what King was teaching when he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We're in this one garment of destiny. Kaplan became involved in NAACP and he donated our building right near the White House and the nation's capital with one stipulation. Kivy said to the Reform Jewish movement, you can have this gift, but you have to be a host to the civil rights movement and remember this is a time dr king it's not like he had an office in washington so my predecessor rabbi dick hirsch called his dear friend martin and said dr king good news you have an office in washington mm. and so it was that the luminaries of the civil rights movement the leadership conference for civil rights gathered in our offices they debated and discussed they strategized and they planned and they wrote the civil rights act i will just add one caveat the great reverend william barber once taught me a great lesson he said rabbi The Voting Rights Act was not written in your conference room. It was written in blood in Selma and transcribed in your conference room, which, again, is why what happened once upon a time seems to happen all the time.
0: Thank you for sharing that history and that historical kind of perspective, especially for those who think about the passage of historical civil rights and voting rights legislation as done, as no longer necessary. Earlier this week, there was the launch of a campaign that both of you are a part of, can I ask you, Reverend McDonald, what was the significance of Wednesday's rally?
2: Let's be clear. Um, voting is um, considered in this country a privilege more than a right. Certainly, we believe that uh, voting is a right for every American citizen, regardless to their party or their principles or persuasion or religion. Uh, voting In America is what makes our democracy uh, what it is and something that we would like to export around the world. But it has, across the last several decades, particularly for people of color and African-American and our Jewish brothers and sisters as well, it's been a challenge. And because we voted in record numbers, even beyond the way we voted in the Obama era this past November, uh, the only way that the majority feels that it can hold on to power is to write uh, crazy suppressive laws. And so now in 47 of our 50 states, uh, we have these voter suppression laws being introduced. I'm in Georgia, and Georgia was the first state that passed it. And we have always seen Georgia as kind of the template of, of of repressive politics in, in the United States, uh, regressive politics in the United States, segregationist politics, anti-LGBTQ, whatever is negative, Georgia kind of sets the tone for the rest of the country. And so we started fighting that battle before the bill passed. And because the Republican Party just stating the facts, controlled all three levels of government in the state of Georgia, they were able to get the bill through totally down partisan lines. But that did not stop our fight. We decided other states need to be aware of what's coming down the tube. Uh, the Heritage Action, part of the Heritage Foundation, and Alex A-L-E-C, the American Legislative Exchange Council, are the primary groups behind this suppressive voter bills. Uh, around the country in the 47 states. And our task now is to educate the public and particularly uh, corporate America. So what we have launched is an awareness for corporate America to do the right thing. So this campaign is an ongoing campaign. It is to stop voter suppression and it is to make corporate America uh, more aware of its engagement
0: You've said a couple of things I just want to clarify here. You said that 47 bills that have been introduced in state legislatures, you've described them as repressive and, and you use the word crazy. Why is it that you describe this as, it's, as crazy?
2: It's, it's very simple. They have bought into the big lie that there was huge voter fraud in the, in the past election. It has gone to every level of our judicial system, including the Supreme Court, federal judges. What voter fraud did we find? Absolutely, virtually none, and and when there was some voter fraud actually found, it was primarily on the Republican side. So when 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 we make these laws based on a lie, the laws will turn out to be suppressive and regressive. This whole voter integrity is a big lie. It's not about voter integrity. It's about huge voter turnout, and how do you suppress huge voter? Turnout. They use these nice evangelical words like integrity and honesty. Uh, But when you look at the bills, how they are shortening the time for voting, requiring more and more voter ID, uh, moving uh, voter boxes, in fact, closing voting precincts, and suppressive and regressive.
0: Rabbi Pastor, when you see and you look at the efforts that are taking place now at the federal level, where and why are people of faith getting involved?
3: You know, we should remember that the civil rights movement was a faith based movement. Dr. King was first and foremost a person of God. And uh, I have another mentor who likes to say the Voting Rights Act wasn't written in our conference room, it was written in church basements across our country. Uh, as the faith community mobilized and organized. Uh, Jewish families showed up with their Christian family. In today's multiracial, multi-religious America, it's a Muslim, Quaker, Baha'i, Hindu, people of all faiths and people of no faiths, but just the faith and humanity and democracy coming together. We're part of faithful democracy. More than 80 faith-based institutions coming together to protect democracy. We know one thing. Our safety as marginalized communities is in our solidarity and our hope for redemption for this country will come through our democracy. And what do I mean when I say that? You know, it was just a few months ago that a white supremacist, racist assault, sedition, and insurrection happened on our nation's capital. And why? They, they waved Confederate flags, and they wore Camp Auschwitz shirts. They don't like Jews. They don't like Muslims. They don't like immigrants. They don't like black people, brown people. What they really don't like is the multiracial democracy, the multi-religious democracy that this country could be, because it does threaten power. And so we know that we have to come together, both for our physical safety, but also because democracy is where the hope of this country can be realized. And there's there's more historical context here, right? One of the great honors of my life was the 50th commemoration of Bloody Sunday, marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge with Congressman John Lewis, his memory for a blessing, who taught us through his life that power concedes nothing without a demand, that the Voting Rights Act didn't just happen, it had to be fought for, and we're fighting for it again. In Shelby the Holder, the Supreme Court in 2013, eviscerated the Voting Rights Act. And so we're now fighting for the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that would restore preclearance, which is the obligation of states with historic voter suppression, to have their new voting rules run by the federal authorities, the Department of Justice. But we also know that even today, given all of the rollbacks that Reverend McDonald just described, even H.R. Uh, 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, would not be enough. Some of these state bills are saying you can't give water to people waiting in line to vote. So when people ask, like, well, how's this voter suppression? Think about it. You close down the polling places. You just say, OK, one voting place per county which means in the big counties with lots of land, but not a lot of people, there's not long voting lines. But in the big cities like Atlanta, Reverend McDonald, am I right? Yes. Big, yes. big <laughs> populated, lots of people in only one polling place. You're going to have hours and hours of waiting online in the hot sun with no water. That's called voting suppression. So we need S1, the For the People Act, which would restore democracy and would be a check on these states and make all of these state rules invalidated. So that's why we're coming together as a multiracial, multi-religious democratic movement to hold our states accountable to the voting rights that John Lewis and that Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner gave their lives for in Mississippi summer, and when so many of us have devoted our lives for.
0: You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. When we come back, I continue my conversation with Rabbi Jonah Dove Pesner and the Reverend Timothy McDonald. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. Welcome to Inspired. I'm your host, Ambreen Khan. If you're just joining, we've been talking about new voting rights laws currently working their way through 40-plus states. Many people, including my guests, see these laws as aimed at suppressing turnout of minority voters. Many folks are talking and looking at the role of faith and voting. Earlier this week, Georgetown University held an online forum about voter participation and the new laws from a Catholic perspective. Here is Sister Anita Baird of the Religious Congregation of the Society of the Daughters of the Heart of Mary.
1: We exercise the right as citizens through the ballot box, and for that right, many people have sacrificed their lives and have died to ensure that all of us have the right to vote and to self-governance, which is at the heart of any democracy, protected at all costs. So, to pursue that that common good is to work for what is the greatest good, I think, for all people, not for just the powerful, those that have the loudest voices, uh, those that can lobby in the halls of our government, but for all the people. And that leads to the common good that creates a nation that can work together and can also be concerned about worldwide issues that that we need to address. So as people of faith, I think, We need to care about these debates and these decisions uh, because of the rights of the least and the most vulnerable are not being guarded and protected.
0: To Reverend Timothy McDonald and Rabbi Jonah Dove-Pesner, guarding and protecting the right to vote needs a moral frame, one invoked from the time, they say, of the early abolitionists fighting slavery to those fighting Jim and Jane Crow. As we get back to my conversation, I asked them about what is different from prior eras in which voting rights and faith leaders were at the front line. One thing you just said was that the, the Civil Rights Act was written in church basements. This state-by-state, local, organizing in which people of faith were forming the kind of coalitions that you all are describing at the grassroots level. My question is, do you have the infrastructure that you had then now?
3: I believe that we do, and I believe that it will get stronger. So look at what just happened in Texas. In Texas, SB1, which was this horrible voter suppression bill, was actually defeated, unlike in Georgia, where we couldn't get organized fast enough. And who gave the courage, who put the pressure on the Democrats to walk out? It was a broad, multiracial, multi-religious movement. The Reformed Jews showed up, the AME showed up, the civil rights group showed up, the Muslim family showed up and put pressure on the elected officials to stage the walkout. And by the way, it's not all bad. The state of Georgia, where Reverend McDonald is sitting right now, elected. Are you ready for this? A white Jewish kid who was bar mitzvah. At the site of the temple bombing where the Klan bombed them because their rabbi was an outspoken advocate for civil rights, whose co-senator is the first black senator for the great state of Georgia who preached in King's pulpit. You cannot make this stuff up. And that happened because of the multi-religious, multi-ethnic campaign to organize grassroots voters to get out the polls. My own movement, we had, I know we're nonpartisan, but we did mobilize 1,600 of our leaders on the ground in Georgia reached 175,000 voters mostly targeting low income voters, communities of color, elderly people, people with disabilities just to make sure they knew their rights, they knew their polling place and they were able to cast their vote. This is what happens when there is big turnout, the country changes and moves in the right direction because we just reflect the people that live here and the and the multiracial multiethnic reality of our of our world and that's why People want to roll back the right to vote. But I do think to answer your question, I do believe we're building up a grassroots infrastructure that stretches, you know, from Atlanta to Houston to Chicago uh, and everywhere in between.
2: Let me, let me expand on that. We have election from over 30 senators next year in 18 months. What they're doing is buying time. That's why they're not supporting anything. That's why nothing is going bipartisan. They are saying in 18 months, we can take back the House. In 18 months, we can take back the Senate. And all we got to do is stop everything. No matter how righteous it is, how good it is, how truthful it is, how much it supports our democracy and our diversity, forget all of that. Let's just stop it until we get the power back in our hands. And they started living the big lie. And then they started legislating the big lie that there was huge voter fraud. They counted ballots so much in Georgia. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it was mind boggling. Absolutely. And what have they found? Absolutely nothing. Republicans are getting rid of. They have already removed the secretary of state, a Republican in Georgia, from his position as the chairman of the state. Board of Election. That was in the law that passed uh, SB 202 in Georgia. They removed him. And now it's going to be some appointed person not elected by the people who get to decide whether we're going to accept the votes in Fulton County or accept the votes in DeKalb County. Those are two of the largest African-American and people of color voting districts in the state of Georgia. They know what they're doing and what they're working towards is November next year. That's why we're not moving on a bipartisan platform, because for them, it's not about the people. It's about power. It's not about our democracy. It's about demagoguery. And until we understand the big lie and and try to get inside of the big lie and realize how important it is for us to vote, if we're not careful, we're going to go backwards instead of forwards.
0: Do you feel that the challenge you have in mobilizing is in part because there isn't a clear individual, but rather this linking together as you are of these potential outcomes that could happen?
2: I think the linking is our strength um, so that they can't just take us off one by one, even a leader by leader. I think the diversity is our strength. And what we're already doing in Georgia, we're looking at the bill. How do you counter the specifics of the bill? We're already doing voter registration for 2022. We're already dealing with issues for November 2022. We're already making sure that the people know about the voter ID. Uh, the new laws about drop offs, about early voting and whatever else they have in these, these suppressive, regressive piece of legislation. The only way you, we're going to win is how you turn out. In the Christian tradition, we said what well, the enemy meant for evil, God can turn it for good. And that's what we're going to do. We know they meant it for evil. As you talk about Donald Trump, Donald Trump was the best organizer we ever had in the progressive movement. He calls us to look beyond our own individuality, our own silos, our own geographies, and say there is the bigger enemy, and we must unite to fight him. And, and it's not just a him, it's an it. He did not create racism. He just gave it more license. He did not create the sentiments that we saw on January the 6th. He just put kerosene on the fire. Now progressive-minded Americans and those of us who love democracy are really coming together. We are. And probably even more so than we did during the Civil Rights Movement, the 50s and the 60s. We cannot stop that momentum. We must increase that momentum. That's why the John Lewis Bill is so important. They know that they can't do it nationally. So they're doing what they've always done when they wanted to practice their racism, their segregation, their bigotry. They go state State And where does it start? In the South, always in the South with the cradle of racism. Also the Bible Belt and the main corporates behind it that we don't like to talk about because we're such good people are the evangelicals. We don't want to, you know, we, we're nice spiritual people, we're nice religious people, and we don't like calling out, uh, you know, other religious people. Well, they need to be called out as well. You can't rewrite history, and narratives are always defined. Who writes the narrative, the hunter or the lion? And we have allowed the hunter to write the narrative for too long. And I'm talking about progressive-minded people, people who love this country, who fight for this country, Black soldiers who, who gave their lives for this country. We've got to continue this diverse coalition, this diverse faith coalition, and, and make sure that we don't go back but that we do even more than we did even in November this past year. We voted harder than we voted during the Obama era, who got two terms and and none of them thought that would ever happen.
0: Reverend McDonald, you're saying we, who's the we that you're describing?
2: I'm talking about the progressive movement, the progressive faith community, the diverse community that that did 2020, That, that same coalition that gave us 2020 what they're trying to do now is to divide us their aim is to take back the senate and take over the house and to stop any progressive movement any progressive legislation really to stop democracy movement in this country we cannot allow that to happen we cannot allow them to turn back the clock so we got to take what they're giving us use it to our advantage mobilize our people and have the largest turnout than we've ever had. And only 50% of our people even vote anyhow.
0: I want to get you in here, Rabbi um, Pazner. I want to talk about the 2,000 rabbis that are part of the denomination. I want to talk about the networks of uh, grassroots organizers. Is this issue mobilizing and engaging the clergy leaders and the faith communities on the ground
3: you asked earlier about the individual who might have been the organizing principle of the last four years. And I really appreciate Reverend McDonald's reflection on the former occupant of the White House. But I also want to acknowledge one might mistake scripture as teaching that slavery was about Pharaoh, um, but it was about Egypt and the complicit nature of the systems of Egypt and the way in which Egyptians benefited from Hebrew slavery. I think that the wake-up call of the last four years wasn't about a particular individual, as Reverend McDonald taught. It was about the systems, the 400 years of oppression. It was about enduring racism and its legacy. And the naivete that the election of the first Black president meant that we were in a post-racial era, uh, and the reality that culminated on the assault on the Capitol. Um, So you asked Uh, Amber, whether I think that the grassroots networks and the movement is really being built in a meaningful and sustainable way. Um, I think that the racial reckoning, I think the lynching of George Floyd, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the uh, assault on people of color, Black and Brown immigrants, the vilification of refugees and migrants and strangers, the ongoing vulnerability, particularly of trans people, but all LGBTQIA folk. Um, the ways in which Jews have experienced brutal, violent attacks along with our Muslim family, shows us that the enduring history of systemic racism in America, alas, festers and endures. That's what this multiracial, multi-religious democracy movement is about overcoming. It shows up most primarily as voting rights because we know that as our safety is in our solidarity, our redemption is in our democracy, and so we need to actually embody the country that we want to be by showing up the polls, by by running for office, by engaging. And by the way, very important to note, this need not be partisan. Racism should be nonpartisan. The Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were p- passed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities. The Voting Rights Act overcame a 54-day filibuster. This needs to be people of goodwill and both political parties that come back to sanity about the promise and the hope of America. And that's, I actually think, what the faith community's role can be, is to lift both political parties up above their narrow parochial interests and into the higher moral plane with a vision of the glorious kingdom that could be in the image of God on earth if we but live out the mandate of our prophets to do justice to love mercy, and to walk with much more humility in the footsteps of the Holy One.
0: As you quote scripture and you appeal to the religious and biblical history that resonates with those who recognize it, you know, you understand what I'm saying here. I see you smiling.
3: Yeah, because the Pew study that just came out, you know, would say that I'm like the rabbi of the biggest group of atheists in American history. That's right. You know what I mean? That's like, right. You got, I got 2,000 reform rabbis leading 2 million reformed Jews who, you know, probably would say like, why are you still reading that Bible? And yet they keep showing up. You know, but the Pew study showed that two of the most, the highest priorities of why people consider themselves Jewish today is social justice and leading an ethical life and they somehow do it as a Jew. And I this isn't unique to Jews. I'm sure for the Muslim community, for the Christian community, for the for for people that themselves might feel multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious and say I am Jewish and I am Christian and that's okay. I think that's okay. I actually think if we do this work, it reminds people why scripture still matters. It reminds people why a house of worship still relevant. It reminds people why Faith is a thing that can inspire and drive their lives, so I'm okay with it.
0: I'm talking with Reverend Jonah Dove Pesner and the Reverend Timothy McDonald about how clergy and faith coalitions are forming around the country to address the growing wave of bills in states that they describe broadly as efforts to suppress the vote. Earlier, both describe the lessons from the civil rights era. And as we get back to our conversation, I bring up a question about what's changed, namely how people of faith and goodwill affiliate and identify, and what that means for organizers. There is a growing ex-evangelical movement, of people of faith who still root themselves in the values that um, that they hold dear. And I was just it brought to mind, as you were talking, Rabbi, uh, the conversation I had with someone in, who lives out in the out, outskirts of Memphis and outskirts of Shelby County, who said she no longer considers herself religious but spiritual, no longer attends the church, but is very deeply committed to her worldview— as you two are talking about this coalition and this effort and making the case of this problem, are you also speaking to folks like her?
2: Speak to them. yeah. speak to them every day. And I, I, I hear them because I have questions myself with institutionalized religion. <laughs> uh, that
0: might surprise some listeners because you're, you're a reverend. So t- tell me what you mean by that.
2: Organized religion. Uh, has a tendency to be co-opted by numbers, by be bought out by monies. Um, it's just not new to the Jewish faith, it's not new to the Christian faith, or the Islamic faith. Organized religion is not our goal. The church is in the streets, the, the church ain't in a building. And and Black Lives Matter really is, has been trying to teach us that I've met so many young people who've never been inside. Of a of a structured church, but are extremely spiritual, are extremely committed to justice and truth and democracy and diversity, which are the very tenets of of faith and people of faith. So, those people who may not come into the synagogue or the temple may not come into the the church building. Uh, uh, that's okay. We meet in the streets. We meet at the ballot box. That's where the faith community meets, what religion is supposed to represent more than religion itself. Faith is supposed to represent community. Faith is supposed to represent love and acceptance and appreciation. Faith is supposed to represent the right to vote and, and, and true democracy. And if you put those things out there, believe me, people will come and if you engage your congregation in 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 those workings people will come
0: Pesner, I want to ask you, picking up on that note, that it's happening in the streets, not inside the walls, and acknowledging the pandemic really shifted the gathering. It shifted the relationship building. It shifted the uh, capacity of faith leaders to educate, to engage, and to build those relationships. What are you seeing, and how are you working with your network of 2,000 rabbis around the country uh, to— Make this issue of democracy and this particular legislation a priority.
3: I love the question. I love uh, Reverend McDonald. You're teaching about not only being in the streets, but being on Zoom. And uh, Amber, I think you you're totally kind of naming what is the future challenge and opportunity of religious life in America. Right? If we're about the institution, if we're about the building, we're lost. It's a losing proposition. If we're about the people and the spirit, that is the future. When it comes to actually being in the streets, we actually tried to experiment. We engaged 250 uh, young people, 250 students, high school kids, and we supported them and trained them and gave them resources and invited them to, out of their Jewish values and Jewish identity, to organize networks of their peers to do social justice campaigns or right, issues they cared about. And they picked issues like climate change, gun violence, the election, obviously, systemic racism. And they, in turn, each organized networks of 10 to 20 people. That meant these 250 young people reached several thousand of their peers. I can guarantee you, Amber, most of them are not dues-paying members of my synagogues, (laughs) and yet they're engaged. So, you know, I I, I will be honest. Can I tell a little truth here? Earlier, I said— We love
0: that. We love the little truths here.
3: (laughs) Here comes some truth. Ready? I lead the largest and most diverse denomination Jewish life, 2 million Reform Jews. They're not all paying dues to our synagogues, but that number comes out of the, the, the data in which so many folk associate themselves with our values, with our approach, with our, with our teachings, with our ways of being in the world, even though they don't pay dues to a synagogue. So we have to talk about belonging, not affiliating, about engaging, mm. not membership.
0: When you see what's happening with critical race theory for both of you, do you see this as a threat that is real or do you see this as simply a mobilizing threat, a threat that's seeking to to engage and enrage and elicit strong emotions from one set of people?
2: There are weapons of mass distractions. Weapons of mass distraction. If they can keep us running behind the critical race theory, we have less time to concentrate on November 2022. We have less time to concentrate on how we're going to uh, register more people and mobilize our people to vote. I'm telling my people, don't get caught up in that. I even, Rabbi, used the, the reference, try telling one of my Jewish brothers and sisters they cannot talk about the Holocaust. How much sense does that make? That's crazy. And you're going to tell an African-American we can't talk about slavery? It is a diversion tactic. It is weapon of mass distractions so that we won't be concentrating on the real problems that we are facing and them trying to take back power in the Senate, take back power in the House, suppressing our vote, fighting against the John Lewis bill fighting against, or stalling at the very least, S-1. Those are the larger issues. And I'm telling my our people, don't get caught up in running around. Can I add, can I add to that a
3: reflection? I, I mean, amen, uh, Reverend McDonald. Um, we actually teach critical race theory as part of our racial equity, diversity, inclusion effort in the Reform Jewish Movement. Um, there are between... 12 and 15 percent of the american jewish community are not white they are black they are brown they're asian they are jews of all use and so first of all to erase critical race theory and not to have an honest conversation about the role of race in america is to erase black jews and brown jews it's not just you know from us as a jewish perspective it's not just about the reality of american history but it's about our own people being erased number one number two i was shocked by the way, in which some people started using critical race theory as the big distraction that we just heard from Reverend McDonald. And I'm seeing some of it from within the white Jewish community. So like my grandma Fanny came here as an immigrant with nothing. She worked hard. And there's this myth in the white Jewish community that like, because America is so perfect and because my grandma worked so hard, everything she achieved has nothing to do with the systemic racism that enabled her to become white. And benefit from white privilege. And that's okay. I love my grandma, Fanny. But she benefited from economic systems and structures, whether it was government subsidized housing, government subsidized education, the corporate sector, all of these systems benefited my white Jewish grandma. And that's okay. But there are voices within the Jewish community, and I'm sure other communities across the spectrum in this country are going through that same reckoning, where somehow critical race theory becomes some kind of threat against the authenticity of their experience. And so I wanna to say to Reverend McDonald said, we would, Jews would never accept not acknowledging the history, the reality, not only of the Holocaust, but 2000 years of pogroms and anti-Semitism. That's just the history we inherit. Just like 1619, it happened. This is what it is. The founding myths that we all got taught in school, those of us that grew up here, didn't paint the full picture. And we gotta have an honest and full picture. But I do agree at the end of the day, Amber, I think you're going in the right direction, which is like, so why make something of this? Who does it benefit? Well, it benefits those people. This is what white supremacy looks like, is pit different minorities against each other, pit marginalized communities against each other with this kind of up or down. Either you're with us, you're, you're actually a real American. I heard Reverend Warnock yesterday at the rally, he said something interesting. He said, some people want to take away the votes of some people. So who's the some people? Right? There's the, some people who are the real Americans who want to take away the votes of the people who are not real Americans. We don't want to have more voters. We want to have the right voters. So I think critical race theory has just exposed this kind of uh, phenomenon of in our society of some people who want to kind of define Americanness in this very narrow white supremacist way and erase the reality of history. And it, to me, it's not a threat. It's just an opportunity for dialogue and deeper understanding.
0: Are you seeing the same conversation, the same struggle taking place inside other faith communities and traditions? Is it a distraction or is it something that is an entry point for taking us back to the conversation?
2: I'm not sensing a, a rise in the African-American community to talk about critical race theory. Um what I'm sensing is this is the way it's always been. They don't want to talk about racism. We, even when we elected a black president, we didn't want to talk about racism <laughs> in this country. This is not a blame game, but you cannot solve what you will not face. Anybody who thinks that racism, you know, race, America has a racist history, but America is not a racist country. You cannot deny the privileges you had free labor. You had free labor, slave labor. What made America is slavery. That's what made America great in the first place. And, and there is white privilege in America. That is just a fact. I don't care how you color it, how you stroke it, how you say it. It is a historical fact. So, you know, we got to come to a point in our journey where we're going to buy into lies Are we going to be seekers of truth? And America right now is leaning more towards buying into lies. Now, that's one thing Trump did do. The whole voting thing, the the, the big lie. He's still running around counting that idea. The whole race theory thing that, that that is being fought now, it's not really even about that. It's about voting. And I think it is a distraction. I'm not getting into that game. I'm focusing on November 2022. Stay focused, people. Stay focused. You know, it's interesting. In the Reform
3: Jewish movement, we took on five years ago or so a process to look at reparations um, uh, to deal with on a systemic policy level and in our own communities, reparations for the descendant of African slaves. And as I talked to civil rights leaders about it, some of them said, don't do that. You know, you're going to play into the hands of those who want to use that as a distraction issue. And I hear that. And that was a concern. On the other hand, getting the kind of mainstream Jewish community to have an honest conversation. By the way, there are many members of the Reform Jewish community who are themselves the descendant of African slaves. They're not. We're not all white Ashkenazic immigrants from Eastern Europe, right? But to say, but as Americans, what obligation do we have to do a deep dive and hold some of our synagogues doing assessments of where their buildings and wealth and all that, that's a healthy conversation to have. So I think it's kind of a both and where we have to... Go deep into the reality of what it means to be in America in 2021 and inherit the legacy of the reality and not and to do what Reverend McDonald said is, and then not let those who would divide us or distract us use those that deep dive, that honest, uh, what we would say in Judaism, cheshbon nefesh, an accounting of our souls. We need to do a cheshbon nefesh. We need to come to account mm. for our history. And we need to stay focused and protect democracy. We can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Right, Rep? <laughs> That's a good Baptist statement there. Yeah.
0: I've been speaking with Rabbi Jonah Dove Pesner of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism and the Reverend Timothy McDonald of First Iconium Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. That's all for this week's show. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler and MC Yogi for our theme music. This week's producers, Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. If you have any questions about this week's show or comments, I want to hear from you. Send me an email at amber at interfaithradio.org. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Thank you for listening wherever you are. I hope you are safe and you stay connected. See you next week.